Tonight, I'll be sharing Jessie's conclusion of what her and her roommates experienced in the aftermath of living in room 232, and the demon that inhabited it. Their terrifying accounts are coming up on this edition of Paranormal Mysteries. Thank you for joining me and welcome. I'm your host, Nick Ryan. Before I start tonight's show, I'd like to recognize all of my amazing listeners from every corner of the world. I appreciate all of your continued support. And without further ado, let's listen to Jesse's conclusion of The Demon in Room 232. Jesse says, Hey Nick, before I start with my conclusion of Room 232, I wanted to sincerely thank you for sharing my and my roommate's story. I was very pleased when you actually stuck with what I wrote and didn't add any personal edits. Also, I was going to ask if you would ask the listeners to consider listening to part one and two before they listen to the conclusion. Thanks again. I have added links to both part one and part two in the show notes. Jesse goes on to say, It has been almost three years since I and my roommates have lived in the notorious Room 232. We continue to heal and move on, but we never forgot. For me, I have been healing quite well since I left Kentucky. However, the memories quietly hover over my perception of everyday life. When I first wrote our story, I did not think there would be anything left to say, but I was very wrong. After years of healing, I and my roommates began remembering things long forgotten from the trauma. They were forgotten for good reason, in that they were the most horrifying experiences of them all. Also, I realized that there were many unanswered questions in the first writings. To be honest, I couldn't answer all of them at the time because I simply did not know all the answers. However, I can answer them now. Lastly, I truly believe that the time in room 232 has made me more sensitive to the spiritual world. Once I have concluded the room 232 story, I will tell a couple of extra paranormal experiences that I have had since I left Kentucky. The rest of our stories begin in the spring of 2021. At the time, I was preparing to return to Kentucky to finish college after my semester-long hiatus. I knew this would be a grave mistake, but I wanted to please my parents and make them proud. One needs to understand, I did try to tell them about what happened in room 232, but it didn't seem to faze them. I realize now that I most likely didn't explain what happened clearly enough, but on the other hand, they may have not believed me but either way, I did not hold it against them. When I arrived on campus, I had a terrible taste in my mouth. I just knew that returning was going to be the end of me. The first thing I did when I got out of the car was look up to the dorm room that read room 232. I later learned that this room was closed for housing and was temporarily used as a quarantine room for students with COVID. Since then, the room had been empty and used for extra storage. That was conveniently ironic. As the school year began, I kept an extremely low profile. I did have a few upperclassmen and work friends that I talked to occasionally, but otherwise, my social life was very limited. 
Our story had not been widely publicized at the time, so very few people knew anything about what had happened to me and my roommates. Even if someone happened to know a bit of what happened, their bit of truth had most likely been turned into stretched stories that could not be considered true. I did tell bits and pieces to the few who asked about it, but besides that, I kept our story to myself. As for Miss Thompson, she didn't bother me at all when I came back. In fact, we didn't even speak unless it was absolutely necessary. It was truly like nothing had ever happened. Our story remained in the shadows, as far-fetched rumors. Not two weeks had passed of being back on campus, and I had completely lost control of my mental health. I started having severe flashbacks, which had me spiraling into a heavy depression. I couldn't bear to call my parents, so I kept going to classes and trying to function despite my condition. Thankfully, I did not have any paranormal experiences in my new room, but life was far from easy. One afternoon, after classes, I was scrolling through the internet watching Instagram reels. I didn't know it at the time, but I came across a clip that apparently was the famous jump scare from the film Insidious. Now, it's not special that I was startled after watching the clip, because anyone watching that jump scare for the first time would be caught off guard. However, it wasn't the jump scare that really got to me. It was the face of the demon. More specifically, the eyes. I watched the video multiple times until I could pause it at the right moment, when the demon's face could be seen clearly. Something about those bright yellowish eyes contrasted on the black and red face reminded me of the demon in room 232, and I was instantly triggered. I sat the phone down and helplessly watched my hands start to shake, and I felt my jaw start to chatter. A nightmare long forgotten returned to my memory, and I began to vividly relive it, as if it was happening at that very moment. In the forgotten nightmare, I was back in room 232 one night, when the demonic activity in the room was at its peak. I was trying to calm my roommates when I finally just snapped. I was done. I burst through our dorm room and was determined to leave. To my surprise, Miss Thompson was standing outside of her apartment a few feet away from me, facing our room. I lost all sense of dignity and started screaming at her. This is all your fault, I screamed, pointing my finger in her face. She didn't say anything, but she had a look of guilt and despair on her face. I angrily turned away and headed toward the lobby area, still shouting obscenities at her. When I reached the lobby door, I glanced back at Miss Thompson to see her entering back into her apartment. I scoffed at her as I opened the door to the lobby, and once inside, I stomped up to the night guard on duty, and I announced that I was leaving that night, and that he needed to do whatever it took to make that happen. He tried to calm me down and slowly explained that he needed a staff member's approval before he could help me. I was so angry, but at this point, I didn't care what I had to do. I swiftly walked back up to Miss Thompson's apartment, banged on the door with my fist, and I insisted that she answer the door. I continued to yell through the door until she finally opened it. I tried to calm myself and explain that I wanted to leave, but the night guard needed her approval before I left. She looked extremely nervous, and her eyes darted back and forth, and she said nothing. Annoyed, I very sternly asked, Why aren't you answering me? And she very nervously said that, It was watching her, and that she couldn't talk because it was 3 a.m. What are you telling me? I demanded. She then slowly started closing the door as she explained that I needed to come back later, 
and then she could explain everything. I protested, but when she finally closed the door, I just stood there at a total loss. I wanted answers. I walked a few steps back to my dorm room, and I went inside. I looked around the darkness and realized that the atmosphere was now calm. I sat next to Ray's bed and laid my head there until I fell asleep. When I woke up, I looked at the time and it read 5 a.m. I got up and walked to Miss Thompson's apartment and promptly knocked on the door. Miss Thompson opened the door almost instantly and let me inside. The apartment looked like any typical older lady's home. There was a flowery couch, a small wooden dining table, and a couple old frames hanging on the wall. To my surprise, the apartment was only the size of one dorm room. When we sat down at the kitchen table, I questioned her about the size of the room, and she explained that her apartment, which was room 234, had always just been one room. However, room 233 had been sealed off since she moved in. She pointed behind me to a door that looked as if it had not been opened in decades. That door leads to room 232. Something evil lives in that room, she said, and it tortures all those who live around it. At this point, the sun was starting to rise, and light was starting to softly peek through Miss Thompson's kitchen window. I desperately wanted to know what was in that room before I left that place forever. I reasoned with Miss Thompson that if anyone deserved to know what was in that room, it was me and my roommates. Besides, the sun was coming up, so the demon would probably be less active. She was extremely reluctant to let me open the door, but she gave in after I presented a very convincing argument. I put my hand on the handle and began to push the jammed door forward. The door swung open, and I scanned the room. The room was very dark with the exception of a few sunbeams coming through the bare window. A few dusty crates cluttered the corner of the room, but the rest of the room sat empty. I began to feel underwhelmed as I watched the dust specks softly float in the sunbeams coming from the window. That was until something moved in the darkness. I froze and stared in the direction of the movement. To my terror, a disfigured face slowly moved from the darkness and into the sunlight. I couldn't see the whole face, but it was a shadowy black face with bright, terrifying yellow eyes. The eyes were wide open and staring into my soul with the indefinite intent to harm me. The next thing I remember was waking up with a jerk of adrenaline. The memory had ended. As I came back to reality on the edge of my bed, I started regaining control of my shaky hands and trembling jaw. I realized that I should talk to someone, so I messaged Ray. I explained what happened and why I was upset. I was frustrated because I never actually saw the entity in room 232, but I did see glimpses of it in my dreams. All I knew was that it was a large, shadowy mass with long arms. We talked about the subject for a good while when Ray described the night when she saw the entity for the first and only time. Ray woke suddenly one night in room 232. She was facing the wall when she woke, but she lazily rolled over to face the inside of the room to get comfortable once again. The soft gleam of the streetlights outside lit up the space just enough to where Ray was able to see around the room. Her heart jumped to her throat as she quickly realized that there was a man in the room. Well, at first glance she thought it was a man, but the more she looked, the more she realized that this couldn't be human. 
It was very tall with extremely long legs and disproportionate long arms. It wasn't wearing clothes, but it didn't need them since it was more of a shadowy mass, rather than a solid, physical thing. It was like a shadow, but at the same time, it wasn't. It was like someone standing at the window, and their shadow was being cast into our room, and the shadow became its own being. There were no facial features, or any defining features. It was just an inky blackness, shaped like a humanoid creature. Ray was absolutely horrified. Tears rolled down her cheeks, and she just knew this eyeless thing was looking right at her. Somehow she found the will to turn over and face the wall again, so she didn't have to look at it anymore. She closed her eyes and silently prayed until she fell back asleep. Ray finished her story, and somehow it helped me to feel validated enough to continue through the semester. I remember one night when I was walking and messing around with a friend outside the dorm doors. As we were joking around, we were about to walk across the corner where room 232 was located. It was dark outside, but we could see enough in front of us to see something was out of the ordinary. The door to room 232 was open. It wasn't completely open, but it was open about a foot or two wide. I just froze, and the smile that was on my face disappeared instantly. The friend that was with me was also close friends with Ray so she understood why I was so startled. The inside of the room was so intensely dark that it sent a chill down my spine. Maybe someone was sick? No. Maybe someone was working in the room? Well, there was no one around or inside the room. Every door on campus locked automatically when someone left, so either someone unlocked it from the outside and left it open for some reason, or someone opened it from the inside. Neither one of us wanted to go near the doorway, so we just slipped past it and left it the way it was. It creeped both of us out. There was another day when I was working in the kitchen with a freshman that I didn't know. Of course, I tried to make friendly talk so it wouldn't be awkward, and eventually we both got comfortable and started talking without any issues. The end of the shift was approaching, and we were both chatting away and finishing the last of the dishes. Somehow, she mentioned that she was living in room 231 for the year. We kept talking, but my curiosity got the best of me. Once the timing was right, I casually asked if she ever had anything weird or out of the ordinary happen to her while living there. She was very open to the idea, but she claimed that she never had anything happen to her in that room. However, she often heard noises and knocking next door in room 232. She even claimed that she heard the toilet flushing a couple of times. At this point, room 232 was still being used as a storage room, so there was no reason why there were noises coming from that room. I didn't push my curiosity much further, but I did mention that I used to live in room 232 the previous year, and some of the weird stuff that had happened, so I was just curious. She didn't even know me, but she knew that something was up in the room next door. One has to understand that I often question my sanity after the whole ordeal, so hearing someone else's opinion in the matter brought me great peace. I then changed the subject, and I never spoke of it again with my new friend. The semester ended, and I was a mental wreck. Finishing a four-year in this college was no longer an option. My parents were disappointed when I told them I needed to come home, but they understood that I was done being in Kentucky. When summer began, I began packing my belongings and preparing for a long drive home. However, I was not heading home quite yet. 
it was time to travel to Ohio for Ray's wedding. Diane would be traveling to pick me up, and we would carpool together for the trip. It was an amazing and refreshing getaway, and I would do anything to do it all again. One of the nights before the wedding, Ray, Diane, and I all sat down, and we agreed that we needed to talk about what had happened to us. It was the first time we talked about it as a group since the spring of 2020. We discussed many things that night, but there were many things that we still couldn't remember. We were all processing it differently, but we had similar PTSD symptoms. We also discussed why we didn't leave sooner. All of us had the same reason. We didn't want to be considered failures. One needs to understand that dropouts at the college we attended were treated poorly. It was pushed almost daily to finish and tough it out, no matter what hardships the students faced. If someone left the college, they were completely excommunicated by the administration. In fact, any communication between the enrolled students and the dropout students was outlawed. Sounds supportive, doesn't it? I hope my sarcasm is clear. For anyone wondering, none of us support that college anymore. In fact, I believe it to be more of a cult, if anything. Sure, they still have some good things happening there, but their rulebook and administration need a good reality check. Rules are made to keep safety, morals, and order, which I am totally okay with. But when the rules lose their sense of situation and reality, they create a suffocating, cultish residence. This was the environment we lived in during the Room 232 experience. Before I continue with Jesse's conclusion to Room 232, remember that you can share your experience with me through email or voice message at paranormalmysteriespodcast.com or at sharemyevp.com. And if you're interested in showing your support, please consider following and sharing the podcast. You can also help me greatly by giving me a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to the show. You can also support me on Patreon, buy me a coffee, or on PayPal by making a one-time donation. You can also become a member and listen to every episode ad-free. If you're looking for additional ways to get involved, please visit my website and join the forum. And be sure to follow me on social media for show updates and future content. And as always, links to all of my contact and support information can be found in the show notes. Jesse goes on to say, The wedding came and went, and we all returned to our hometowns. When I finally arrived home in sunny California, I decided I needed professional help for my mental health. Therapy for PTSD was not easy. I wanted to get better as soon as I possibly could, and I worked hard with the exercises that my therapist gave me. The longer I worked at it, the more I realized how much I had forgotten. It was like light bulb memories and details were flickering on in my brain. It was exciting and terrible. I wasn't the only one remembering things. Ray and Diane were both remembering things over time. This next story was one of Ray's stories. She had completely blocked the memory out until she saw a specific scene from a movie which jogged her memory. Ray sat with crossed legs on her bed quietly working on one of her final projects. Papers, binders, books, and other supplies were all strewn out in front of her as she busily worked with what little time she had. She was tired of everything that had been happening, and she wanted to get through the semester and go home for Thanksgiving and Christmas. The unusual activity was not as common during the day, so Ray felt that she would be fine even without anyone else in the room. 
This, sadly, would not be the case. Everything was and felt normal until suddenly it just didn't anymore. It felt to her as if something shifted in the room. Not a physical shifting, but an unseen shifting that made her internal alarms scream. With her instincts working, every hair on the back of her neck began to stand up as she knew that she was no longer alone in room 232. She sat there for a moment, looking around, almost waiting for something to fall off of a dresser, or maybe hear some movement. Ray expected the demon to do something to the room, but this time, it did something to her. She felt something cold wrap around her ankle, and before she knew it, she was lunged across the room, flat on her back. Papers rained down around her, and her back burned from scraping the carpet. The back of her head throbbed from hitting the floor, and the wind was knocked out of her lungs. Ray's heart pounded as she scrambled to her feet and started grabbing her belongings. She frantically stuffed her papers into a binder, clutched her keys and phone, and ran out the door, leaving the lights on. Ray ran barefoot to her sister's room and stayed there until she knew that at least one of us was off work, and she could return. She never finished that last project or paper. She just sat on her sister's bed trying to understand what had just happened to her. She didn't tell anyone what had happened at the time, and consequently, her brain protected her sanity. It took two years of healing for Ray to remember what happened that afternoon. Looking back, we most likely would have reached out for help sooner, if we had known what happened that afternoon. When Ray told me this memory, I was shocked. I thought about it for days, and something about it just wasn't sitting right with me. I knew there was a memory light bulb starting to flicker, but I couldn't pinpoint exactly what it was. Now, even though I went to therapy and learned how to process emotions and get some memories back, therapy wasn't a miracle worker. I couldn't remember much, but what I did remember hit me like a freight train. There was one night when I specifically remember being grabbed by a cold hand on my right leg. At the time, all I could remember was being extremely frightened and internally screaming for God to make it stop. But this was no longer the case. I do not remember getting off the bed. However, I do remember being on the floor next to my bed, looking up at the sheets and blankets that were pulled in a fashion that seemed as if I may have been pulled off the bed. I do not remember getting back on the bed, nor do I remember anything else from that night. However, even as I write this, my hands start to slightly shiver. I cannot know for sure if I was pulled off my bed that night, but that one memory points toward that direction. Experiencing something paranormal for a long period of time affects how you perceive the world around you. For example, Diane and I discuss the differences in our lives now compared to our lives four years ago. One fun fact was that we were no longer phased or scared after watching horror movies. However, that doesn't mean that nothing scared us. For Diane, the fear of the dark conjured itself after room 232. For me, I had an extreme fear of abandonment after room 232 and before therapy. It was the strangest thing. I would just be sitting at home after work when suddenly I would get the overwhelming feeling that my parents would never come home and I would be left alone forever. These symptoms were not including all the anxiety, depression, panic attacks, and extreme insomnia that came along with the PTSD package. Hopefully this helps give a sneak peek of how it affected our lives in the long run. This next story was mine and Diane's story. 
I'm going to take a moment and note that I was very hesitant to share this story. It is extremely disturbing, and I ask that the listeners proceed with caution. It was sometime in the fall semester when I was listening to some music and getting some last-minute tasks done. I was required to attend a conference that night in the chapel, so I wanted to get as much done as I could before the conference started. As the time for the conference got closer, my demeanor started to change. I felt angry and annoyed that I had to attend the conference. As the sun began to go down, the more my attitude darkened. I paced back and forth in my room, debating on whether I would go. I knew that the dorms would be checked once the conference started to make sure that everyone was attending, but I tried to think of a way to get out of it. It was now five minutes till the conference started, and I gave up and went anyway. Why was I so upset about this? The angry thoughts became louder and louder in my mind. Once I reached the chapel, I sat in the back by myself, and the service started soon after. The congregation sang songs and prepared the preaching, but I wanted no part of it. I didn't want to sing, and I didn't want to be there. But why did I feel this way? I loved to sing, and it was completely out of character for me. One distinct detail that I remember was being so cold. It was freezing in that chapel. Now, this, believe it or not, was not out of the ordinary. Generally, the staff would keep it cool in the chapel to make sure students stayed awake during services. But this was beyond cool. It was freezing. I glanced at the thermostat and read the number on it. 59 degrees. As the preaching began, I sat there not engaging myself at all. Then, I got the most disturbing, horrible thought. I looked over to the side door in the chapel and thought, If I had a gun, who would I shoot first? I began to see a vision of myself bursting through the chapel doors with a gun sobbing uncontrollably. The whole auditorium went into a panic as I pointed it around in a manic manner. Still sobbing, I slowly lifted the gun into the roof of my mouth, and I leave the rest to one's imagination. Snapping back into reality, a tear softly rolled down my cheek. I quickly brushed it away and felt lost. My mind cleared, and I realized what was happening. I had to fight back. I refused to let the influence of this demon win. When the conference service ended, I opened the snack shop for the conference guests and stayed out of the room until curfew. This was when Diane came into the story. That night when my roommates had arrived home from work, I opened up to Diane about what had happened at the conference, and her jaw dropped in shock. She went on to explain that when she was in the conference the day before, she had the same experience. The unexplained rage, the thoughts, and the visions were very similar. However, the only difference was the person who would have been killed. Instead of Diane taking out herself, she took out Miss Thompson. It was too specific to be a coincidence. As I mentioned before, I truly believe that living in room 232 has made me more sensitive to the spiritual world, so I have a few stories to share. The first story took place in January 2022. My grandma and I took a trip up the coast of California. We spent most of our time relaxing at the beaches and towns at Fort Bragg, but we also went to the Silicon Valley for a couple of days. One of those days, we planned to visit the Winchester Mansion. As a bit of a background, the mansion was built by Sarah Winchester of the Winchester Musket. When her child and husband passed away, the morning Sarah had no direction on what to do with her new inherited fortune. 
She sought help from a medium who informed her that her deceased husband wanted her to build a mansion to provide shelter for Sarah and for the spirits who died at the hand of a Winchester musket. There was only one rule. Don't stop building, or Sarah would die. The widow did exactly what she was told and created a masterpiece called the Winchester Mansion. My grandma and I hurried to the starting location and began the tour with the rest of the tourists. We slowly made our way through the house, and I was absolutely hypnotized with how massive and extravagant it was. Halfway through the tour, the tour guide announced that the next room we would be visiting would be the seance room. Hearing this made me uneasy, but I felt comfort in knowing that my grandma was with me. People in front of us began to fill the open space in the room, and I trailed behind my grandma until I reached the doorway. I took one step into that room, and my world went spinning. The dizziness was so intense I couldn't even walk straight. Soon I realized that other tourists were beginning to stare, and I very sloppily walked over to my grandma who had a worried look on her face. I leaned on her a bit to keep my balance, while she whispered, Are you okay? I told her I was just having a bit of a dizzy spell, and I would be fine. I didn't want her to worry, but I was anything but fine. The dizziness grew worse, and I got an intense wave of nausea. The tour guide then started talking, and I tried to keep my balance secure while holding on to my grandma's shoulder. My vision was starting to get blocked with little black spots, and I was quietly panicking. Please don't pass out. Please don't pass out, I internally said to myself. I fought to stay conscious until I noticed the group was starting to walk to the next room. My grandma helped me to leave the seance room, and I instantly started feeling better. She walked me to an open space, and I stood there while she kept exploring. Suddenly, I felt someone tug the back of my jacket. To be honest, I wasn't too surprised when this happened, but not for reasons one might think. The jacket I was wearing that day often got attention from strangers. I would always get compliments for it, and some people would even touch it without permission, just to get a good look at it. When I felt the tugging, I turned around and fully expected someone from the group to be looking at my jacket. But, to my surprise, there was no one except a man standing about five feet away from me who was paying me no mind. I was a bit confused, but naturally I turned back around. Instantly, I felt the tugging once more, and I whipped around to see who it was. Alas, there was no one there. It could have been the man, but how could he have moved that fast? I felt very uneasy, and I felt like I was being toyed with. I then walked away from the open space and I joined my grandma for the rest of the tour. Near the end of the tour, the guide mentioned that many previous tourists and workers had otherworldly experiences that included the following, seeing shadow figures, feeling clothes being tugged, and hearing voices. As soon as he mentioned that, I realized that I had just had my first paranormal experience since leaving Kentucky. Another experience I had took place in April of 2022. I was on another vacation visiting Diane in Tennessee. We spent some time in Nashville, but mostly stayed in Chattanooga. One evening in Chattanooga, we went on the Murder and Mayhem Haunted History Tour in the downtown area. There were only five of us on the tour, and we had a great time. I do recall getting slightly dizzy at the first location we visited, but I soon forgot about it as we continued through the city. Everything was great, until the very last location. As we walked up to the building, I felt a bit uneasy. 
It was a very old brick building that had two locked double glass doors as an entrance. On either side of the glass doors were massive window displays that stuck out about 10 feet more than the doors. It was not easy to look into the building at first glance. Most of our view was blocked by dusty old blinds hanging in the windows. If we really wanted to see inside, we would need to walk up to the glass doors. The tour guide revealed to us that this building was an abandoned asylum. He went on to tell us the eerie history and the terrifying stories that went along with it. As he talked, I looked over to the window display closest to me. Were the blinds moving? I intentionally blinked a few times to make sure my contacts weren't blurring my vision. I stared, but quickly brushed it off. Once the tour guide was done, we were all given the chance to go up to the double doors and try to look inside. As I got closer to the dusty glass doors, red flags started going off in my head. Danger, stay away. But I cupped my hands to the sides of my head and leaned in to look beyond the lightly tinted glass. Everything inside me was screaming to leave it alone and to walk away. Did I? No, I just had to know what was inside. I scanned the abandoned lobby cautiously. The first thing I realized was that the area looked like a tornado ripped through it and then was left for decades to collect dust. Desks, filing cabinets, computers, chairs, and paper littered the area in a fashion that seemed as if the area used to be organized years before, but since then had been run down and scattered. The next thing I saw would forever haunt me. It happened so fast, and it had the dynamics of a jump scare. A massive, shadowy mass darted past the right-hand corner of the lobby without warning. My adrenaline made me gasp and flinch. That's enough for me, I thought to myself, as I instantly walked away from the glass. Diane noticed I was startled and asked me what happened. As we walked to the end of the tour, I told her everything. Her jaw dropped and added that she saw the blinds moving as well. This was the first time I ever saw a shadow figure head-on, and hopefully it will be the last time. Since the first podcast has been released, my roommates and I have received loads of support from friends, family, students, and ex-students from the Kentucky College. I am very pleased to even say that my parents openly admitted that they did not realize how extreme living in Kentucky was, and they would try to support me better in the future. Receiving the support alone helped us move on. We were no longer abandoned, and we were no longer cast aside. I hope you have enjoyed Chapter 2 of Room 232. However, there is one more thing to add before I close our story for good. When I first began the first draft of Chapter 2, strange things began happening in my office at work. One day when I was writing, the door motion sensor would not stop going off for some reason, even though there wasn't anything opening or touching the door. Then the office dog started acting incredibly spooked. He wanted to stay by my side at all costs, which was out of character for him. After this happened, I started getting nervous, so I closed my writings and walked around for a bit. The dog stayed by my side the whole time, except when I got to the storage room in the office. I had a strange feeling, but I took a few steps around inside. I felt slightly dizzy, so I left the room and didn't work on Chapter 2 the rest of the workday. Nothing else happened until I went to work the next day. I opened up my document and realized that the work I did the previous day, and the day before the previous day, was now gone. 
I was very frustrated because the writing had already been saved several times and shouldn't have just disappeared. I tried to recover it, but in the process I ended up accidentally deleting my whole first draft from my email. I was absolutely devastated. Almost 15 hours of work were completely wasted. When I decided to try again, I downloaded a completely different desktop that wouldn't delete my drafts forever. I also backed it up to a USB, just in case. If it disappeared again, I would take it as a sign that I didn't need to tell the rest of the story. Yet, here we are. I sincerely thank you for your time. And your support. Jesse. As tonight's show comes to a close, I'd like to thank Jesse for sharing her and her roommate's experiences. And remember that if you have a story to share with me, you can find links to all of my contact information in the show notes. Until next time, thanks to all of you for listening, and I look forward to having you back here in my next episode as we continue our journey into the unexplained, right here on Paranormal Mysteries.